Hello, and welcome to 37th and the World, the official podcast of the Georgetown Journal of International Affairs. Gajia is the student-run flagship publication of Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. On 37th and the World, we dive into key global trends and speak directly with the experts working on these issues in areas ranging from conflict and security, human rights and development, science and technology, society and culture, business and economics, and global governance. In the following conversation, the Georgetown Journal of International Affairs sat down with Ambassador Frank Levin to discuss the U.S.-China trade war and prospects for a reset under a Biden administration. For 30 years, Ambassador Levin has been recognized globally as a specialist in U.S. trade policy and advocate of free trade engagement across Asia-Pacific. He is currently the founder and CEO of Export Now, the largest offshore operator of China e-commerce. In government, he served as Undersecretary for International Trade at the U.S. Department of Commerce. In that capacity, Lavin was lead U.S. trade negotiator for both China and India, and the senior policy official in the Commerce Department responsible for commercial policy, export promotion, and trade negotiations across the globe. He was the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Singapore from 2001 to 2005, where he took part in negotiating the U.S.-Singapore Free Trade Agreement. Earlier in his career, Lavin served in the George H.W. Bush and Reagan administrations, working in the Department of Commerce, Department of State, National Security Council, and the White House. Lavin served as director of the Official of Political Affairs in the White House from 1987 to 89. He is an alumnus of the Georgetown School of Foreign Service. President Trump kicked off his trade war against China in mid-2018 and has since imposed $50 billion in tariffs, plus other economic barriers, aimed at correcting unfair trade practices and forced transfers of technology and intellectual property. Beijing has reciprocated with tariffs of its own and accused Washington of promoting protectionism in order to lower U.S. trade deficit and revive American industry. Last January's Phase 1 agreement has done little to simmer tensions. At this stage, a new administration, which has yet to take office, an end to the trade war with Beijing is naturally a matter of conjecture. Like all other foreign affairs, this was one kept in the wings during the presidential campaigns. So, our dialogue begins by assessing Joe Biden's personal stance towards free trade, an issue lacking consensus within both of America's political parties. We discuss whether Trump has already tied Biden's hands against reversing course, if that's really what he wants to do. But we also wonder whether the conflict has raised legitimate goals toward a more equitable economic relationship, and whether these must be sacrificed for a return to normal. Reducing tensions while avoiding capitulation will be a potential minefield. Ambassador Lavin suggests how such a process can be initiated, managed, and sold to the American public. Beyond the immediate issue of trade policy, our dialogue veers toward the overarching question of how Beijing sees the U.S. as a partner and competitor, today and in decades to come. Ambassador Lavin brings his unique perspective to how the Chinese leadership, with its authoritarian approach to economics and diplomacy, 
fits America into the story of what has been, until now, an inexorable rise as a regional powerhouse. Specifically, he explains the country's tendency toward an economic determinism and viewing the U.S. as a fading challenger. And finally, Lavner proposes how China's trade policy and conflicts with the West are in fact a separate development from the more political disputes over Hong Kong and Taiwan. So um, my first question is about the bilateral uh, relations uh, with China. So uh, do you think that Biden will try to reset relations with China in an effort to return to normal? Or do you think he'll try to maintain some of the objectives over the past four years? Well, I think in terms of tone and process, there will be a reset because he's a different type of person, President Trump used uh, friction as a management tool and uh, President Biden doesn't have that view of foreign policy, that view of diplomacy. Um, But I think the core geographical, the core geostrategic issues, I should say, will remain the same. I mean, Taiwan is still Taiwan, South China Sea is still South China Sea. Concern about China's role in the region is is still there. So that change in tone or change in process doesn't and then change the, the fundamental challenges in the relationship. Right, right, no, no absolutely. So uh, in the past, you've referred to Biden as generally pro-trade from a left of center perspective. So what in his background do you think has pointed to that direction? Well, he supported NAFTA. Uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't delineate every vote he's made on trade, but NAFTA was a controversial vote. Some. Mm-hmm quarters and uh and certainly in the democratic party the union constituencies were against it so um so good for him i mean his instinct is pro-trade he wrote an essay on foreign policy this year in foreign affairs quarterly in which he said protectionism is not the right path for america and you've got to have some appetite or some orientation for trade so I wouldn't describe him as sort of a fervent free trader, but I would say he he believes in America playing a role of international leadership, and he believes that the economic benefits of trade are exceed the economic cost of dislocation of trade. So his sentiment or his orientation is for more trade. Right now, how that manifests itself in policy and initiatives is quite a question mark because the one place where you don't get any insight to answer that question is in the course of a presidential campaign. So it behooves anyone who's running for president of the United States to be silent on that set of questions and who's running against a guy that's a pretty pronounced trade hawk, so not to give your enemy any ammunition. So he, he did, he, so Biden kept quiet on that set of issues in terms of explaining exactly what he meant, but he's going to face a few initiatives. Um, there's, there's a question about a US-EU trade initiative there's the legacy question about the TPP, which was a Obama administration mm-hmm. initiative in which Trump pulled out of. But, but in fairness to Trump, uh, Hillary Clinton said it was she was against it, and Bernie Sanders started the whole discussion four years ago by when he said he was against it. So, uh, so it's not simply turning a light switch from off to on. There's going to be more of a political consideration than that. And then there were other initiatives out there. There was discussions of early 
negotiations on a possible US-UK free trade agreement. Uh, and there's discussions about possible digital initiatives or sectoral initiatives. So he can he can take this path any any direction he chooses, but he's got to decide and articulate and sell a trade agenda. Right. Well, uh, do you think that because he kept quiet during uh, the campaigning, do you think that trade policy will be a priority in either direction under this new administration? Well, that's a great point because I suspect that the main consideration is exactly what you articulated. The main consideration is not are you for trade or against trade? That, but the main consideration is simply opportunity cost, management mm-hmm. bandwidth. There's only a handful of activities a president can undertake at any one time, so you have to be intelligent about your priorities. Right. And if trade, if you can do eight things this next year and trade is number nine, well, that's your answer. So, so it, again, he's, he's still sorting through that now because, of course, in a campaign, you indicate your sort of preferences on a range of issues, but right. you might not be able to accommodate all of those initiatives, especially your first year. Right. So, uh, so he's going to have to make a decision. And I, I, again, he hasn't articulated where he's going to come out. Look, the the curveball in this whole discussion and what might what might elevate trade is when trade becomes geopolitical, and right. and that's a, I guess an indirect way of saying the rise of China and China's role in Asia. Uh, puts a greater impetus behind a possible U.S. trade initiative because right. most, if not all, of our trading partners in Asia have this odd paradox where China is their leading trade partner, but their preference as an economic interlocutor is the United States because we're rules-based and we have no territorial ambitions or disputes in the region. So that makes us a, the best partner to dance with. Mm. Uh, so that that evolution of the rise of China might give a new push to the U.S. Uh, rejoining the TPP. Right. No, that that makes sense. Um, so given uh, general bilateral negativity towards China, how does the U.S. Uh, back off from the trade war? Or what are the first steps towards uh, status quo ante? Well, I'm not sure I take the premise that he wants precisely to go to status quo ante. I think I think I think we could say he doesn't want daily friction. He doesn't want daily mm. ill will, uh, and that's not a constructive approach. That you know, you, using tariffs to direct your trade policy is like using your car horn to steer your car. Right. I mean, it, it, there's a big cost to it, and possibly some advantages, but there's a if you use it chronically, there's just a huge cost to it. Um, and indeed, we've seen the tariffs imposed. I think Trump administration cost U.S. jobs and uh, led to deterioration in the trade deficit. So, uh, so it was a lose-lose policy. It hurt China, but it hurt the U.S. as well. Um, right. So, I think what you'd say he doesn't have an appetite for uh, more tariffs. He probably has some appetite for, for for removing trade barriers, but he hasn't spelled that out yet. But I, I don't know if that's precisely the same. I don't think that's precisely right. the same as going to status quo. Status quo and, and, you know, I've recommended to the Biden administration that they just remove all of the tariffs that were imposed by Trump. That he does, at least in trade terms, go back to status quo. But I don't know if 
Biden has the appetite for that either, because there's going to be a political cost, political criticism to do that. They might, they might redefine some of these. They might weaken them. They right. might narrow them. There might be some ways to sort of selectively reduce the harmful impact of it without formally repealing all of them. Um, we might set up a blue ribbon commission to right. look at it. I mean, there's steps he could take, but again, he hasn't signaled what he's going to do. So I think what you'd say, I mean, the, typically with the U.S. president, there's almost no such thing as a standalone trade policy. What there is is the trade component of a foreign policy. So, so what we really need to sort through is what is the U.S. approach to China? What does the U.S. want from China? What right. levers do we have to get us there? And then how does trade fit into that broader picture? Right. No, absolutely. That makes sense. Um, so looking back, do you think the trade war had any beneficial impact in term, in a diplomatic sense towards building a more equitable, fair and honest relationship, both in terms of trade and as an indication of backbone against a more assertive China abroad? Yeah, it's hard to point to good news out of that uh, effort. I, I think you, you might be able to make the case that there's some benefit in shock value but I'd say shock value that's not connected to broader strategy, you know, whatever value you get out of that dissipates very quickly. So sometimes it is good to useful to sort of throw an elbow into somebody, but, but to what end, what was the ultimate goal here was a bit of a question mark. I I'd put the question this way, Nicole, if, if instead of raising tariffs, against China, we lowered tariffs with other trading partners, you would have had the same signal effect to China. You would have said every Chinese good is now proportionally less competitive in the U.S. market mm. because everybody else enjoys tariff preferences. But but nobody in the U.S. would have been hurt right. because they're enjoying better trade. So And you would have shifted trade relations. You would have, in a sense, punished or stigmatized China for having these economic inefficiencies on economic unfairness, uh, but but you wouldn't have hurt the U.S. So that I think would have been a more sustainable mm. policy. Yeah, it would have been wiser, but, but it would have required a sentiment from the White House that I don't think was present over the last four years, which is, look, trade is fundamentally a good idea. And so we, if there's an opportunity to seek more trade, uh, on any kind of equitable basis, we want to do that. I just don't think that was Trump's approach. Trump was very skeptical of trade. So when you said to him, look, you can you can punish China, but we'll also reduce overall trade, I think he said that's fine. That's an acceptable outcome. Right. No, that, that, that sounds reasonable. Um, do you think, uh, do you believe in the theory that China's leadership is convinced of a U.S. decline and that automatically views any pushback uh, from U.S. foreign economic policy, even in a mild form, as a campaign to stop China's rise? Uh, I'd say that is a, that is a, uh, how would you call it, that is a, that is a view and circulation in China. Mm. I'm going to share with you my most recent encounter with that view, you could take a look at this. But that is a view. Uh, that is that is a view that you will hear in China. I can't tell you. Thank you. Uh, I can't tell you how prevalent that is. Whether it's a rhetorical point, whether it's a majority view, whether it's an anecdote, 
but but you will certainly pick it up. Um, and it's sort of two sides of a coin. So I had this interesting conversation with a leading scholar from a Chinese think tank, and these guys, it's all government directed, of course. But his analogy was United States is Tony Harding. Hmm. United States is is there to, so I put that in the chat, in the chat. Thank you. Really want to that. Uh, but, you know, the United States is there just to whack China in the knee because China's going to get the gold medal. And the only way U.S. can sort of keep beat is, is to take a take an iron bar or whatever they use to golf right. these guys using just a whacker. Uh, so, so there, so his, I mean, what he was saying was none of the criticism of China is legitimate. It's a hundred percent peak. It's a hundred percent spite and jealousy and ill-mannered and because China's too. Look, and, and the other side of the coin is I, I don't think there's been an authoritarian system in history that hasn't held out to themselves we've cracked the code we're, we we understand market economics but our system's a little better uh so we've got sort of an improved version of market economics and we're getting better results right and so we've cracked the code. So we've got something a little better so almost by definition every other system is worse off i mean if we're the best everybody else is inferior almost by definition so that that way, that's a widely held view. It's almost it's almost an article of faith. You can't you can't be in the leadership in a authoritarian system and say, you know, we might have it right, we might have it wrong. You can't say that the way you could in any Western system. Right. Uh, so they firmly firmly believe model and the superior model gives them uh superior results right it's not quite the same as us is destined to decline uh but they're going to they believe they're going to outperform the us right look and here let me give you one other element of this received wisdom i think you'd say it's the dominant narrative in china this point the other interesting point is they really haven't had an economic contraction uh in 30 or 40 years I mean, you can check this out, but any anybody who's lived in a Western economy, you'll get a reasonably sharp economic, economic contraction at least once a decade. Right. So everybody's experienced a bit of pain, a bit of bad news, sometimes more than a bit. I mean, sometimes it's quite painful and it disrupts your whole life and you've got to struggle through it. And you, we all have friends who education's put on hold or right. career plans are put on hold, other things are put on hold, and you know, but you kind of get through it. So, it's that hard to write. If you've never experienced that, you're much more inclined to subscribe to that Chinese sort of, you know, determinism, that uh, economic determinism. Say, look, we've cracked the code. You know, we've just got better tools, better management, better system, and we're getting better results. Right. Uh, so, so I think that 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 is a dominant view in China. Absolutely. Right. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. So also speaking of uh, Chinese narratives, do you think that it is a misinterpretation of China's attitudes and aspirations to assume that resolving the trade war will soften uh, China's regional aspirations, including their stance on Hong Kong and Taiwan? I think those two are largely disconnected. Right. I, 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 think, I think China has this kind of mercantilist, trade policy that they've adopted for unrelated set of reasons uh, 
unrelated to their view towards Hong Kong, Taiwan, South China Sea. Mm-hmm. Right. So I don't I don't think they see that. And by the way, I would say the United States we view these as largely, or until recently we view them as largely unrelated. If you're more of a of a China hawk, I guess you say this is all from the same stew. This all stems from the same source. But I think most analysts would look at China and say, look, they've they've long held this kind of mercantilist trade policy. But but the South China Sea and Hong Kong moves are in the last few years. So those are those are recent developments that are probably have more to do with uh, their economic reach in the South China Sea and their and this turmoil we saw last year in Hong Kong. So those were sort of spurred by separate set of right. uh, policy drivers. Right. Yeah. D- yeah. Different origins. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what what do you see as the best possible outcome over the next 18 to 24 months in terms of U.S.-China relations? Well, this is, a, to my mind, a an example of where statecraft is called for. Statecraft meaning you apply the tools that you have against the specific tasks and you try to avoid dogmatism, you try to avoid stigmatizing uh an interlocutor as an adversary or as evil, but you'd say there are certain things they're doing, which uh, areas where there's a strong basis for mutual collaboration and improving at the market. I would put trade in that category. I'd put educational exchanges in that category. Uh, so there's certain, certain areas where there's a good basis for collaboration, a good basis for win-win. There are uh, other areas where U.S. has core interest and China's articulated as core interest that might be uh, at odds. And we would say the status quo in Taiwan, and we would say freedom of navigation in South China Sea. We would say, I think U.S. would say generally any time that country unilaterally tries to change its borders or uses force to change its borders is not helpful for regional stability. So, uh, so that's a a general statement of principle for the United States. But I think what we have to do is make sure we're messaging to China that uh, we have to protect our core interests and we're prepared to pay a price to do so. And I'd say in the same breath, this is this is where I think Trump really fell short. I think it's been the same breath as saying, look, China has benefited and will continue to benefit enormously from the current global trading system, the current global political system, that the, that the long-term sort of goals we all share of peace and prosperity have been enormously beneficial to China. And the reasons it's had a good 30 or 40 year run is because of sort of a WTO-led press a process and a rules-based international system. So, so it's just not healthy for China to begin the conversation with some kind of view that the system is intrinsically unfair or China's being treated wrong by the world community it needs to right historical injustice and needs to challenge status quo i'd say it's a, that there's a seduction to that that can work very much against china's interest and i think i think communicating that positive inclusion narrative is important to u.s statecraft as well this was you know bob zellick's wall street journal essay on uh, china as a stakeholder that China is not just a participant in the international system, but China is big enough that it actually should be a steward of the international system. Right. It has as much to gain through a stable 
rules based on international order that has less to gain from challenging that system. So it behooves China to be a status quo power, if you will, than a revisionist power. Right. Yeah. That. But, that yeah. But that's probably not the, the majority view in China. Hmm. I mean, the majority view in China is there. Look, there's there's unfairness out there, and historically China's been too weak to assert itself, and that that's no longer the case. Right. So all we're doing is making the points that everybody else has made, and everybody's mm-hmm. mad at us because we're standing up. Right. So there's that sort of narrative of victimhood, and mm-hmm. uh, you know that there's no 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 China means no harm, but it's simply seeking its place in the sun. Right. Yeah. No, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I I don't want to take up too much of your time, but is there any additional thoughts that you would like to share? Well, I'd say, by the way, are you an Asian studies major or are you a Chinese language student or what? Uh, yes, I am a Chinese language student. Um, I'm a comparative yeah. regions major. So That's I study uh, East yeah. Asia and Middle East. Well, I, I think the interesting point is this. We talk about diplomacy, we talk mm-hmm. about statecraft, we talk about world systems. What's interesting to me is that of all the major powers in the world today, say the top 10, the top 8, they probably account for 80 or 90% of global GDP, 80 or 90% of world military capabilities. The only country in that group that is still defining its international role is China. Mm-hmm. That China has historically not been part of an international system. Historically, it's because it was never part of the European-led state system. And then it had so much internal turmoil and destruction and revolutions and its own domestic problems for an extended period of time. It is only in the last few decades that they have this sort of consequential international role. So it's quite a new role for them, and it's quite a new role for the rest of the world. But everything else we do in diplomacy, I mean, I think almost without exception, is working through sort of normal channels, normal issues, normal countries, right? So the only one that is strategic or definitional is China. So if I had only one insight with the Biden administration, it would be that. I mean, I think our, I think our relations with Europe are going to be great because I think Biden's a good interlocutor and Europe wants a good relationship. I think our relationship with other treaty allies are, is going to be very positive. I think relationships across Africa and South America will be very good for all the set of reasons. There's always challenges in the Mideast, uh, but there's no reason to think Biden will do any worse than other folks are not. And look, there are always, there are malevolent powers out there, hostile powers out there, um, uh, opportunistic powers out there. I put Iran, Cuba, Russia, North Korea, and that group. But none of them have the economic heft to change facts on the ground. They all have the capacity to do harm. They all have the capacity to cause trouble, but they can't ultimately change reality. China has the economic heft to reshape Asia or try to reshape Asia as it sees fit. So it, it bears it bears our attention.